You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hi, I'm Lee. Hi, I'm Mark. And tonight is the second half of our Crap Monsters podcast. Because... <laughs> this you say is... crap, but I'm sure they're loved by someone. It, it, oh, yeah, okay. Fair enough. Well, like Alpha Centauri was loved by us. This is... Uh... <sighs> This is not the best indication of the production values of Doctor Who if we've had to do crap monsters in two parts because we couldn't get through it in <laughs> an hour. My wife said exactly the same thing as we were talking this afternoon. Yeah, brilliant. Next week we're doing uh, Doctor Who's best monsters and we'll have to extend that yeah. to get it to last It's going to be like a five-minute extra podcast. <laughs> yeah, probably. Maybe I'll stick it on as an Easter egg at the end of this. Nice. Hmm. Uh, before we start, though, before we start on the crap monsters, there are two emails. Uh, one, I've got to try and pronounce these correctly, since I've no idea what he's talking about. Maybe you'll be able to tell me. One well, starts off, Hi, Jem, Kimber, Aya, Shana, and Raya, or something like that. Hey, a diddly dumb style pop culture reference for the show notes, uh, which obviously won't happen because we don't have show notes. So, I think that was a 1980s cartoon for girls. Really? Yeah. It wasn't like The Lion King or anything? No, well, unless I'm mistaken, Erica Ensign from Verity is a big fan of Jem. I think that's the characters from oh, that. Oh, God. So you think the cartoon's called Jem? I think so. Oh, it is. Brilliant. I thought that was complimentary, but obviously not. Anyway, the email continues. I just want to say thanks. I know you boys can be cutting sometimes and I was a bit nervous about your season 24 episode. Season 24 came at a time for me when discovering girls and a love of Doctor Who were equal and both caused tingles in funny places and truly got revs up. Giggity. I didn't vote. I didn't vote as I love this season, M. Sylvester, and you did me proud. A great podcast. The only thing I can really point out is that you gradually painted an interesting picture of a 2000 AD cartoony comic book series, but stated how many performances, specifically Richard Bryars, were hammy. I would add a missing link to this. Think of Skeletor, Krang, and the other villains of TV cartoons of the time. How did they speak? <laughs> then he says, do the voice, JR. How did they speak? In a cackly high voice or a low, dark, gruff voice? All of a sudden, to me, these performances... <laughs> all of a sudden, to me, these performances seem to slip into place. A case of too much too soon for too many fans, but I think Andrew Cartmel was ahead of his time, showrunner in the making, and much more than just a script editor. Well, better get on, as Al Noe and myself have to wash... Doc's Socks. Al and Doc do a podcast with me, you know. It's called Diddly Dumb. Ah. Speak soon, 
the Rev resurrected. Do you think that was any memory? Yes. I suspect that was just another opportunity to advertise himself on our show. It worked. Well, it's outrageous. It's bloody outrageous. (laughs) Uh, We have another email here from a military man. Okay. Hello, Blue Boxers. I've only recently discovered your podcast after JR's appearance on the Australian for the Doomsday cast, but Ah. I am working my way through some of the older episodes. Oh, dear. Really enjoyed the season 24 discussion. (laughs) Yeah. Really enjoyed the season 24 discussion, although I've never really been all that keen on the stories involved myself. I had high hopes that New Doctor, New Script Editor and a break might have led to a revamp for the series after being disappointed by the trial season, but on being confronted with Time and the Rani, I really didn't know what to do. I now appreciate the short lead time and other issues getting the story and indeed the season to screen, but in 1988, Australia being about a year behind, Time in the Rani was a total letdown and a real moment of what the hell has happened to my favourite series. Paradise Towers was an improvement and I've come to appreciate it more over the years as there are some solid ideas on show. In fact, I could see this one being remade now, but the production really does the story very few favours. And then came Delta and the Bannermen. I know there are people who really like Delta, but I honestly can't see the attraction. To use your quote, it's crap. I think that was Lee's quote he was using there. Trademark Lee Rawlings. Episode 2 is the only time I've ever (laughs) turned off new Doctor Who, although I came close during Victory of the Daleks, and I have tried to be more objective about the story over later viewings, but it has remained a fail for me. Dragonfire had a few nice moments, and we said goodbye to Mel, but it closed a very disappointing season. Thankfully, the ABC screened Remembrance of the Daleks as a one-off straight after Dragonfire, otherwise I may have left the series at that point. Remembrance gave me hope that season 24 was just a waiver while the new Doctor and production team found their feet, and that the rest of season 25 would be as good when we got to see it the following year. For me, the McCoy era did get better, and there are some good stories in the last two seasons. Survival is probably the standout, but season 24 wasn't a good start. Anyway, thanks for reading my rambling, and keep up the good work, Captain Hawkins. I think he was being a little presumptuous there. How did he know we were going to read his email out? I could easily have not bothered. Well, just as well you did then, wasn't it? (laughs) Captain Hawkins. Yeah, we've thanks, got, Captain Hawkins. We've actually got military people oh, yeah. listening to our show now. Unless, of, Thank you very much, Captain Hawkins. Unless, of course, it's just a pseudonym. What? That, that would be outrageous mm. for somebody to write into our podcast and not give their real name. Like, <laughs> the, Rev, like the Rev did on his like email. Al, no. What sort of a name is that? Well, that's actually his real name. What? <laughs> Did you not realise that, Mark? Yes, I was doing that for comic effect. Oh, really? <laughs> because actually, it's not his real name. I made that oh. up. I just wanted to test you. No. Okay, we'd better recap. We do have one more thing to do, but I'm saving it for the end of the show. End on a high. I don't think so. But, oh. well, it depends what you mean by a high, Mark. It's the very last Knox box. No! It feels like the end of an era. What? It does, doesn't it? Do you know, it's been three and a half months, I think, since Knox box started, and it's gone so quickly. 
I can't believe it. It really has become the Knoxbox podcast with us duffers kind of added on, really, hasn't it? Well, some might say it's the JR podcast with you duffers added on, but I wouldn't really well, like... Well, I said that to a listener <laughs> myself just the other day. Oh, on Twitter, yeah. yeah. So. We'd better... before We'll do Knoxbox at the end, even though I suspect it might be a bit of a downer to end the podcast with, but I think we've got to save it for the end, haven't we? After all, we're talking about crap monsters, so it's not as if this entire podcast is going to be terribly <laughs> upbeat, is it? Let's be honest. Um, Lee, I'm assuming, will not have listened to the first crap monsters podcast, which he's not going to confirm or deny. In fact, I think he's disappeared. Oh, uh, no, no. Uh, well, we've got a bad bit of time lag on this, so um, I am here. But no, I haven't listened to it, I'm afraid. So this is going to be fresh to me. Lee likes to come into these things fresh. He doesn't like to uh, muddy his thinking with what's gone on before. Or no, even... And he can't be asked to listen no. to the podcast. So now, or, or use any thinking. <laughs> so now, even though the listeners will have heard the first half of this podcast already, I'm going to have to re-go over <laughs> all the criteria, aren't I? <laughs> Okay, for the benefit of any listeners who haven't heard the first half or who have banished it from their memories, and for the benefit of Lee, here is the criteria that we... They might be listening for the first time. They might be listening for the first time. Mm. Yes, that's what I said. Well, no, not exactly what I said, but it was what I implied when I said people who may not have heard the first one because I'm assuming that anybody who's a regular listener will probably have heard the first one, and therefore anybody who's hearing this one without having heard the other one probably hasn't listened to the Blue Box podcast before. I'm hoping now that people will write into blueboxpodcast at yahoo.co.uk to confirm that this was their first episode of the Blue Box podcast. And if anybody does, I'd like to apologise in advance. Okay, that criteria... <laughs> Am I doing this by myself? I am, pretty much. Well, it's the same each week, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much is. Yeah. Okay. The criteria. <laughs> I laid down the notion that somewhere between concept and execution, if something goes wrong, it will be in one of four stages. And the oh, four yes, I remember this. Yes. And the four stages were thus. One is the concept, the idea that the writer comes up with for a monster. And the second one is the design. Obviously, a designer gets assigned to the story, and they have to take the writer's idea and turn it into a drawing, a design, an illustration. Turn it into something physical. Now, the third stage is actually making something physical of that, and that is when you get the model maker or the costume designer, or whomsoever it is. The realisation. Yep, to actually turn that design into a physical recreation of the writer's original notion. And the fourth one is the performance by the actor or other performer who's inside the costume, or the puppeteer, or whatever, the uh, CGI designer, who actually puts that monster onto the screen. And somewhere between the concept, the design the realisation and the performance, something must have gone wrong for a monster to end up in our list. Now, our list, because obviously, you know, everybody sits down when they write their story and thinks, my monster's going to be the best monster ever. But it very rarely happens. So obviously, 
something has gone wrong somewhere, right? You'd think so, wouldn't you? I mean, I love Kroll, me. Yes. Well, Kroll wasn't on our list. I'll go over the ones we did in the last show in a second, just for Lee, very quickly. But, the list. What I did was, I got the listeners to uh, write in and nominate five monsters each that were somewhat below par. And, well, quite a few listeners wrote in, but they all voted for different monsters, so we didn't come (laughs) up with a definitive top ten. So what I decided to do was take the ten doctors who've all faced monsters, which means that I didn't include John Hurt or Paul McGann, although I think I might come back to Paul McGann in a minute, because Paul McGann didn't actually face any monsters either. So the ten monsters who the ten doctors who did face monsters, I decided to have one on the list for each of those ten doctors. And sometimes those monsters that I picked would represent other monsters of a similar ilk. And I figured that what I would do was any monsters that got multiple nominations from the listeners would go on the list anyway, and I would fill in the doctors who didn't have multiply nominated monsters on their lists with uh, choices of my own, which I've picked to highlight certain ideas and notions and reasons behind the monsters so that we could try over the course of the ten monsters to cover all different types of monsters and all different types of reasons for the concept going wrong at some point between the writer's head and the television screen to try and give some variety as well. So, very quickly, the monsters that we included in the first podcast for the first Doctor, uh, the one I chose was the Vord, uh, on account of the fact that that pretty much represents sensorites and monoids too. Basically, it's the monsters before Doctor Who really became a show about the monsters, and so before the writers were really coming up with fully developed concepts for what a monster should be. <clears throat> In other words, those three chosen there, they, they don't really have enough backstory to make you believe that they're credible and plausible creatures. Something that nature would have perhaps evolved. They're more like ideas than they are creatures that you might actually consider could uh, have evolved somewhere in the universe. For the second Doctor, I came up with quarks, which also kind of represent crotons and, to a certain extent, the mechanoids from the first Doctor and the Cybermen, to a certain extent, in that, with Terry Nation having withdrawn the rights to use the Daleks in the series, the people making the series were desperate to come up with uh, something that they could use as a replacement. Uh, Something that, uh, you know, would be as strong a presence on the screen as the Daleks were. And then for the third Doctor, uh, there was a multiple vote from our listeners, and they decided to throw us Alpha Centauri. Really? Yeah, why is Alpha Centauri a crap monster? Well, we couldn't decide that either, because we all loved Alpha Centauri. So we we argued the case against Alpha Centauri being a crap monster. (laughs) For the fourth Doctor, well, uh, the one I nominated was the Vardens. Actually, uh, that was a listener nomination as well. But they stand in for also the Nymon, the Mandrels, the Taran Wood Beast, the Creature from the Pit... Basically, the Graham Williams monsters, because I argued that in the Graham Williams era, the stories were more about the plots and the characters 
than they were about the monsters, and a lot of the time the monsters were just thrown in in order to be monsters. Mm. So they're often slightly underdeveloped or slightly oddly uh, dreamt up, as it were. And then finally for the fifth Doctor, which was as far as we got, we had also another listener nomination, the Merka. And, uh, you know, along with (coughs) Kroll and the Creature from the Pit, the Merka seems to be a case of throwing in something big or spectacular just for the sake of it. Mm. And not thinking to yourself, hang on, this is Doctor Who. We don't have a terribly big budget. We might not be able to do this idea justice. So there you go. Those were the five monsters we uh, had on the first show. And now that we're only quarter of an hour into this show, we could perhaps <laughs> get on with it. <laughs> <laughs> I do thank you for reading them out, though. Okay. We are up to the sixth Doctor. Well, I, do, do either of you two know why I've got on this list? You don't, do you? I did have a little sneaky peek before we started recording. Oh, did you? Mm. Okay, then. Uh, Okay, I'm not going to say, would you like to guess what monster I've chosen for the Sixth Doctor? I'll pluck a name out of the air. Oh, go on, pluck a name out of the air then, Mark. (laughs) Could it be the Cryons? No, it's Sil. What? Yeah, okay, it's the Cryons. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the reason I came up with the Cryons is because, you know, 20-plus years into Doctor Who, and even in the Graham Williams era, where they necessarily weren't doing justice to the ideas by not thinking the ideas through terribly well, the monsters at least fit in the story. We discussed the Nymon and the Mandrills in particular, and the Vardens as well, and they all have a place in the stories. It's not like the... the writers literally just threw a monster in for the sake of it, except in the case of the Tar and Woodbeast. But all those monsters actually do fit in the stories. But the Cryons, whoever wrote Attack of the Cybermen, and, well, I wouldn't like to nominate anybody, but we all know that that's a story with several different cooks. And perhaps that's your perfect analogy. All these different cooks are spoiling the broth. Cryons. How uh, This is one of the big themes of the first episode, Lee, is I mm. talked about whether nature would have evolved a creature, you know, whether it's plausible that this creature might have developed through nature, through natural means, when we're talking about uh, flesh and blood creatures. Cryons, how does nature evolve a creature that... You know... Can't suffers... exist at room temperature. Yeah, If it goes above zero, it just dies. Even a fish could be out of water for several minutes at a time without being in particular danger. I mean, to my mind, they're only included to give Lytton a sort of a a bit of a character twist at the end. Well, yeah. It wasn't a complete git. Exactly. But and and as Mm. such, they needn't have been developed to be creatures that can only exist in sub-zero temperatures. And not only that, not just how does nature develop a creature that can only exist in sub-zero temperatures, because, okay, you have fish that can only exist underwater, and you have mammals that can only exist above water, so it's not that ludicrous a concept. But this is a planet where there are no ice zones. There are no sub-zero temperatures, 
till the Cybermen get there and create the tombs and freeze them. How does any mm. of this work? Well, you've, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, that's a perfectly crap monster, isn't it, uh, in, in the concept stage straight away? Because it just doesn't make any sense, like you've just highlighted, to have a creature that dies over the uh, zero-degree temperature on a planet that has no ice stones. And like you say, it, the whole point of this was the Cybermen freezing the, the tombs. And maybe at the writing stage, they were just lazy and didn't do their homework and kind of remember what Tellus was su- supposed to be about. Um, you know, what was the reason for them? What was the reason for them for being uh, in the story? Of, yeah. Well, for, they for, are the ones. Dying who, they're the ones who contacted Lytton to come down and get rid of the Cybermen. That was the idea. That was the right. plan. Okay. And what what was the point of them uh, dying over that kind of zero degree? There must have been a reason for injecting that into the storyline. I think it's because he wanted to make an homage to Tomb of the Cybermen, so when I say he, they, whoever, (laughs) wanted to make an homage to Tomb of the Cybermen and just thought, oh, tombs, remember the Cybermen were frozen, weren't they? Wouldn't they be, wouldn't he be really cool (laughs) (laughs) if we had a, if we had a monster that had to exist in sub-zero temperatures? Yeah, but conversely, in the new series, you've got the snowmen. It, which is a similar sort of idea, but it works. Well, because they are something that's been created and under somebody else's control. Mm-hmm. This is something else we discussed last time. You know, if mm. you're going to do a robot, you have to have somebody who's in charge of the robots because nature doesn't evolve robots. And going back to the cryons, the cryons could have worked if he hadn't put in all that stupid stuff about the sub-zero temperatures. If exactly. You if you'd have had the cryons as something like the Shibogans on Gallifrey, mm-hmm. who live in the sort of outland somewhere, mm. where they're just like really infuriated that these Cybermen have just turned up and taken over their planet, and they want to get rid of them, but they don't have the wherewithal to do it themselves because you know they're not that advanced that they have the kind of weaponry that can do it, then yes, they they could get they could get in touch with somebody, get in contact with somebody, bring somebody in to get rid of the Cybermen for them. That would have made perfect sense. But the whole cryon backstory is just such utterly ridiculous nonsense. And no amount... The performance probably doesn't help either because you get the impression they were directed to do all this sort of over-the-top kind of hand gesturing and all that kind of stuff. Yes, they were actually embarrassing to look at Mm. and embarrassing to watch being performed. So even... (laughs) (laughs) even though the concept was bad... It didn't actually improve anywhere further down the line. No, it didn't. And having, you know, it's famous now, isn't it? Having a a famous actress underneath all that, hidden so badly. She probably would be quite happy that she was hidden now, thinking about it. But Yeah. Yeah, I know. But the thing is, it's the opposite (laughs) of in Revelation of the Daleks, where... And for a long time, this was one of those urban legends where people thought, did he actually do oh, it? Yeah. Um, oh, Laurence Olivier mm. had actually expressed <laughs> expressed a desire to be in Doctor Who, but, you know, hidden beneath a monster costume so that nobody would know who he was. And for years, people wondered if that was actually him at the start of Revelation of the Daleks. <laughs> of course it wasn't. But putting people like Faith Brown and... Um, Sarah Green, wasn't it? Yeah. And yeah. the other one was going to be Koo Stark. Yeah. And putting these people under this costume... Wasn't it one of the Freuds that was the third one? Uh, Emma, Emma Freud. Freud. Yeah. Uh, it might have been. 
These are all pretty famous people. Mm. What on earth were they doing in these ridiculous costumes? Just a bit of face makeup would have been enough, and that that would have yeah. given the nuances of the, the actor's face. Yeah. And also, you know, maybe obviously we're, we're retconning and changing it, but um, the concepts side of things, if you'd have had them having the gift of creating ice from their bodies for some reason, then that way the Cybermen could use them to help freeze their tombs, and that would be a better reason for them having something against the Cybermen. That they, they've made them do more than what uh, was in the story. And it also, that could have been out. ultimately used as a weapon against the Cybermen yeah. at the end of the story, exactly. rather than have the Doctor pick up a gun and start shooting them. <laughs> well, uh, you know what? That's life. <laughs> <laughs> we can't go back and change it now. So let me. Um, look, before we get on to Sylvester McCoy, I'll do an email because we have well, an Is email. Is that your last word on uh, the, the cryons. cryons? Does anybody need to say any more last words on the cryons? Well, I'm thinking yeah. one of the authors of the uh, the story might. Oh, go on then. What would he say? He say this is my last word on the subject, and then he talk about it a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I'm not going to ask you which one of the authors that was, probably because it's probably all of them. Um, <clears throat> okay, we, people wrote in when they made their suggestions, and not only did they make suggestions, they also a lot of them had something to say about why they'd made the suggestions. And I think, seeing as most of these suggestions didn't make it to the list, but still bear mentioning, I'm going to read through a bunch of these emails and so very quickly, because there are loads of them, but I think they're all worth reading now. Yeah, go for it. David Kitchen says his five suggestions were the Animus, mm. which is from the Web Planet, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I'm right, aren't I? Yes, yes, yes. Built up well throughout the story, but when encountered, looks awful and doesn't really do anything. Much better as an unseen concept spreading influence early on than it was as an actual monster. He also nominates, this one's going to be a little controversial, Sea Devils, an example of a monster that looked great in both iterations, but were written as bland, characterless and generic monsters, thus wasting a huge amount of potential. I say this as someone who rates the Silurians as my all-time favourite story. In Warriors on the Cheap, they reduced further to the role of cannon fodder for the Silurians. I can't say I disagree with him there. And actually, if the Silurians is your favourite story, then to me, to my mind, that would be a perfect reason for finding the Sea Devils horrible and bland mm. because they're the absolute polar opposite of what mm. the Silurians were. Anyway, his third nomination, the Taran Wood Beast. Usually I can ignore bad effects, but this one is so laugh-out-loud funny that it therefore pulls you out of a story that didn't need to have a monster. He also nominates The Flesh, a monster seemingly created to serve the plot arc more than anything else, and where the interesting idea about the rights of flesh beings is thrown away for a silly runaround with a stupid-looking monster could have been so much better. And finally, and this one's also going to be... <laughs> A little bit controversial. The Angels. The Weeping Angels. Mm. He agrees that they're perfect in their first outing. However, outside of that, they really fail as a monster, in the same way that the Cybermen work best in the Tenth Planet. However, at least the Cybermen can fill the role of army of cool invading robots, 
as they did in the Invasion and Earthshock. Mm. The angels can't even do that. A one-trick pony, no matter how great that one-trick was. Fair well, there you go. That's David Kitchens. Um, I'll do a couple more quickly. Tim Burrows says, I have to agree with Chris on the Vardens. Oh, he's replying to somebody else's post about mm-hmm. the Vardens. I think all fans pretty much understand that cheap effects happen and they're largely forgo- forgiven. The tinfoil shimmering, <clears throat> the tinfoil shimmering apparition, oh, frog in the throat. <coughs> Cough it dear, up. Dear. Yeah, I'm going to be rolling around on the floor struggling with this frog in a minute again. Ah. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, the tinfoil shimmering apparition effect could have been fine with a different sound effect. The tinfoil rattling noise could have been fine with a different visual. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <coughs> yeah. I, might, I might even have forgiven both the effects if the fully realised baddie was what they spent the money on instead. But no. Crap visual, crap sound, crap reveal. Yeah. Massively. <clears throat> Other fair. Yeah, I'm going to take a swig of water because I'm really struggling with this frog again. <coughs> Other favourites which defy the suspension of disbelief carries on Tim include the nucleus prawn. <laughs> <coughs> oh, I love him, he's great. Well his <coughs> <coughs> little arms when he's walking along full size. It's uh, a very strange choice for what a virus might actually look like in the flesh, so to speak. Um a prawn. It made uh, your book look good though, didn't it? <laughs> well, absolutely, but that was an actual prawn. The huggy statue in the screaming jungle of Marinus, the light bulb animals of Spiridon, and Skagra's hat. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, oh, you'll love this, Mark. I'll do this one and then we'll get back to uh, the seventh doctor. Richard Judge says, five monsters that are worse than a Nymon. Yeah. Number, you don't want to react to that, Mark? All of them. <clears throat> You're very funny. Nymon's the best monster ever. And Richard Judge is a class act because he's created a very impressive theme tune that will be coming on very soon. Indeed. So he's probably the best judge of that, would you say, Mark? Oh, see what you did there. <laughs> he says, five monsters that are worse than a Nymon. Number one, the Optera. Yeah, a bit of an easy target, really. Number two, oh, this one, the Garm. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Do you know, while we're on the Garm, I didn't bring this up in the list, but in the 1980s, there are several occasions. The Garm is one. Magma Beast. <clears throat> no, I wasn't going to say the Magma Beast. Huh? No, I was going to say the Garm, the Robot in Time Lash. They're all blue, actually, the ones I've named so far. <laughs> the oh, uh, Omega's underling things in Arkham Infinity. Oh, yeah. And the two Hujimi Watsits in Ghost Light. There are quite a few occasions where they throw a monster in, almost because they seem to think the story needs a monster. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they yeah. just don't spend any time thinking about it whatsoever. You know, several of the other examples I've given elsewhere on the list have been times when they haven't thought a concept through particularly well. But on these occasions, there's no thought gone there's into no the... No, there's no concept. There's just stick monster here, which leaves the designer with so little to go on that whoever the designer is this week... And when we spoke about the Leisure Hive 
and the Argolins in there, where it was like, here's a designer with too much time on their hands and not enough thought in their head to think rationally through the concept that they've just come up with something that they think looks like, you know, something a design student would come up with. And you it's know, not just that the Garm is a pointless monster, it's the fact that he's supposed to be sort of quite ominous and scary and he just looks like a cuddly dog. And not just a cuddly dog, a big blue cuddly dog. Hmm. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the concept behind the gum is really nice. If you were to read the book, I expect it probably would uh, conjure up all kinds of imagery, good Im- imagery. Um, but, yeah, when you see the thing shuffling around the corner, I don't, I don't mind the design. It doesn't look too bad, but it's just completely and utterly wrong for, the, for Doctor Who um, yeah. and in that episode itself. Well, and Stephen Gallagher, of course, is a decent enough writer. He is, yeah. I should imagine, so long since I've read the novel of Terminus, I should imagine it's a whole lot better than the TV version, which apparently was struck with lots of problems, and Mm. I really don't think it was his concept that made it to the screen in the end. No. But I think a lot of the problems with that story were the design, and the Garm is a perfect example of that. Should we get back to Richard Judge's list? Yes, Because we've got three more. Number three, the magma creature. Yeah. Number four, uh, we shall come back to. Number five, that thing from the Lazarus experiment. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, But number four, he gives the cleaners from Paradise Towers. And that's the one that's on our list for uh, the seventh Doctor. The cleaners. So it should be. Well, yeah, because... Well, uh, given my four stages... As an idea, mm. the cleaners, it's not a bad idea. No. They are subservient, mm-hmm. so there's no reason for them not to... Because my big thing throughout has been, as I've said, would nature have evolved this creature? Obviously, with something like the cleaners, you don't need that to be the case. But the the cleaners, the concept is not a bad idea. They're cleaners that have been readapted to be a weapon. Cleaning machines that have been readapted mm. to be a weapon. That's actually a fairly neat idea. But the design is really clunky. And in fact, the design is so clunky that turning that design into a physical creation and then getting somebody to operate it turns it into an impossible nightmare of a task. Mm. <clears throat> and the cleaners. Well, the way I, uh, the way I phrased it when I came up with the list was, they're like an update of the war machines where 20 years of advancements mm. in technology and design have given us a creation that isn't a 1% improvement. Yeah, yeah. I think on I said original. before, it's like the, uh, the war machine's little annoying brother. Yeah. It's, it's a I'd, bit... like to, I'd like to see those uh, go into, um, uh, what's that program, Robot Wars. That had been quite amusing, watching the war machines and the cleaners at it. Um, attacking each other, that really they are such a poor design that I'm just wondering, um, you know, the, the person who possibly sat down and drew the, the, the design from the concept, from the idea, were they not thinking at any point or do they not care at any point about budget restraints and materials and somebody having to make it and sit in it? Or are they just like creatively just drawn away and going, yeah, that's a great idea, here you are guys. And who who gets to sign it off? Surely one of the producers has to sign it off. Like can... Peter Jackson had to sign off everything through Lord of the Rings to make sure it's perfect. They must have had a signing off stage. And well, again, the, the producers probably looked at it and went, 
Yeah, I think yeah, that's that's good. We'll do that. Oh, did they were they drunk? What were they thinking? I can only imagine that budgets were so stretched at this point in the series history because in real terms they had gone down significantly mm. that that was perhaps the best they could do on the money i can't i can't imagine any other reason for them having turned out the way they did because they to my mind they spoil a decent story and i think a lot of people can't get beyond that it's like the happiness patrol i think a lot of people can't get beyond the fact that you've got these sort of dolled up, slightly older women, you know, and all the pink, as it were. Mm. But when you look at the bus conductor and the, the season after that, from the Psychic Circus episodes, um, that's quite, a, I think that's quite a neat design, if I remember right. You only really needed to think, well, instead of having a giant garbage truck walking around with twisty things on it to kill people and claws, why don't we make it sort of like a couple of people in Android outfits and have their, you know, do a bit of an auton where the hands flip down or something very simple like that, which would have been a very easy thing to do um, and much more simpler on the space side of things as well. But I don't know. I don't know how these people think. It's difficult. It's difficult to know how they could have improved it without mm. knowing what their parameters were in terms of budget and feasibility of design. Mm. Mm. And what was in the script as well, because I suppose... I was going to say, I mean, as good as the, the script writer is, if he's putting in that idea, it's got to be a viable idea from that standpoint. You, I, can imagine, standpoint. I can imagine that in the script, he had a concept of a machine mm -hmm. similar to something you might have had in Blade Runner, say, where you would yeah. have to entirely CGI it, probably, in order to make it work on <laughs> yeah. screen. And at that point, he or somebody should have said to him, OK, you can't do this on Doctor Who's budget, so you've either got to rethink the concept there, or, you know, the the cleaners could have just been human beings yeah. Yeah. who are under some kind of hypnotism or mind control. Do you know? True enough. I think the trouble was, John Nathan Turner was obviously really, really upset with the programme at this point. Hadn't refound his mojo yet, which I think he would do over the next couple of years. Andrew Cartmel, it's pretty much his first story, and he's getting to grips with the job. So, you know, these problems he's are kind of... up the pieces of stories that have been submitted before, so it's not like they're even his stories. He's just having to try and make the best of what he's got. Well, the one before. And this one, when you come to problems with this, you only really see them as problems once you've got the experience of having been in the studio and knowing what's possible. At mm. this point, he's got no experience of being in the studio, so he has no idea what's possible. So he perhaps doesn't see it. John Nathan Turner perhaps doesn't care enough to see it. And the original author... Uh, is thinking, you know, it's Doctor Who, sky's the limit. And it all goes tits <laughs> up. Right, should we have... Uh, we're going to get to the new series in a minute. We're going to skip straight past um, Paul McGann, as he didn't, he didn't feature any monsters in his story, except unless you want to call the little snake thing that the master is for a few brief seconds a monster. Mm, that was really count. What do you think? It's crap. Yeah, I did actually I think it was a bit crap. Um, it was, it was, the, it was the actual slithering kind of CGI globular thing was fine, but then to have a little kind of snake face and a cobweb stand up, 
and hiss at the screen. That was a bit cheesy. Well, um, yeah, but there's nothing wrong with cheesy. <laughs> um, no, but maybe maybe wasn't as crap. Maybe doesn't reach this crap list really because if you think about it, the concept was there, the design worked. You know, the realization was that everything was there, and the, but there was no performance that need to be. But it did it worked for what was needed in the story. So it it's did not its job. It, yeah, it was just crap from my own personal standpoint. I would like to mention one thing about it, though, because obviously <clears throat> people watching that story would have been saying, what the hell is going on here? Time Lords can't do this. Mm. And actually, when you get to the end of time, people are looking at the master in that and saying, what the hell is going on here? We've never yeah. seen Time Lords yeah. do this either. But if you think about it, the Doctor, the other Time Lords, when they regenerate, they change from one body into another body, which essentially is the same journey that a caterpillar goes through before it turns into a butterfly. And in between those two stages, you have a chrysalis, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the Time Lords, we don't get to see the chrysalis, but presumably, as part of the regeneration, the actual you know, regeneration process... There will be a very short-lived and it presumably internalised. There will be a chrysalis stage, a small, very small, maybe infinitesimal stage during a regular regeneration at which the Time Lord is no longer the one body and hasn't yet become the other body. Mm-hmm. An in-between stage. And actually, if you go like back the to... Yes, if you go back to Planet of the Spiders and you see Choji... And Quampo. Did I say that right? No. Whatever. Campo. Campo and Choji. You get there a kind of metaphor for the idea that there's a chrysalis stage, in a way. Mm. The fact that there's a, a stage that isn't part of the change, but becomes part of the process of the change. Mm. And with the Watcher, the same thing. Now, the Masters... Run out. I mean, he's of... different for a start because he's squandered all his regenerations already, so he's going to be different from all the other Time Lords because he's living on borrowed time, isn't he? He's not doing it by the book. Yes, thanks for stepping all over what I was just saying, Mark. <laughs> but all right, any time. <laughs> the Master has used up all his regenerations, but he's obviously still going to find a new body. Mm-hmm. So what you have in the TV movie is you have that chrysalis stage with neither the body that it used to be nor the body that it's going to be in place yet. And so the snake becomes the chrysalis that we don't normally see, the intermediary stage. Now, moving on to the end of time, because the Master is problematic in terms of his regenerations and because of the way the Master was killed and brought back to life... Uh, it's not that much of a leap to go from this sort of... I keep calling it a chrysalis. It's not really a chrysalis, but you know what I mean. There's in, it's not that much of a leap to go from the notion that there can be an intermediary stage that can manifest itself in several different ways to a regeneration that has gone wrong, not fully inhabiting the new body, but the sort of intermediary stage this thing that can be a snake or can be a watcher or can be Choji, this intermediary stage kind of takes control 
of the new body rather than being something that inhabits the new body. Do you know what I mean? It's mm. kind of the two things haven't become knitted together, but instead of stayed two separate things within the one body. And so the body's going wrong. And so it can, the body, instead of adapting into its new sort of reality as a bipedal, ape-like, you know, human being, essentially, this body has all the outward appearance of a human being, but all the physical properties of an intermediary stage that can be anything. So the master in the end of time is just going physically crazy rather mm. than perhaps intellectually crazy. Fair enough. It's a shame that they had to use the same actor twice, though. It would have been quite an interesting opportunity to throw in a different face for those two episodes. That would have made more sense with your um, chrysalis idea. Then. Maybe, but then here I am retconning away. <laughs> <laughs> you hate retconning, Jay. I know I do, but kind of... Well, I, I hate retconning if you take it... Oh, whatever. Yes, too I seriously. Hate. Yeah. yeah, I hate retconning if you take it too seriously. However, on the other hand, if you're going to say X can't happen because Y says it can't happen... What you're saying is if you thought through your argument, then that's cool, but if you just go, oh, well... That can't happen this. because of yeah. such and such a yeah, story. Yeah. I'm saying, well, take such and such a story, which says yeah. maybe it can. Anyway, mm-hmm. let's take another couple of... Uh, our listeners' suggestions. Bill Jennings. Alpha Centauri. While everybody was smirking, if not outright laughing at this creature at home, John Pertwee managed to converse with it with a straight face through two stories. <laughs> now that is acting. Bravo, Mr. <laughs> Pertwee. Uh, he says, The Zolfathurans, a monster that makes no sense. How an immobile race of cacti somehow managed to get into a war with a neighbouring planet is beyond me. Indeed, as Megalos might say, it really is beyond my comprehension. <laughs> and he's absolutely right. The Vardens. Why the Fourth Doctor would even consider these guys a threat to Gallifrey is a genuine puzzle. These shimmering tinfoil creatures were bound to drive fence-sitting potential fans to another channel. Those who waited for the big reveal saw the awesome sight as they manifested menacingly with their green coveralls and safety helmets. <laughs> uh, Bill Jennings, number four. The gastropods. Twin dilemma monster. Mm. Says it all, doesn't it? <laughs> and finally, the Cybermen. Once upon a time, humans... Well, see, I mentioned this before we even did the podcast. I don't mm-hmm. think it is that controversial. Once upon a time, he says, humans were quite frightened of the idea of human-machine interaction. But as we walk around with artificial hips, conversing on the mobile Bluetooth device in our ear, and attending to whatever our Google Calendar tells us to, we seem to be very comfortable with the idea today. So what purpose do the Cybermen serve now? As an aggressive machine monster, that's what. After the Daleks, Mechanoids, War Machines, Quarks, K1 Robot, DV and SV Robots, Kral Androids and assorted tools use the series, including the cleaners, mining machines, shredding machine, various computers, artificial intelligence and whatever mechanical tools are laying around, I'm sure the Cybermen have the aggressive machine monster marketplace all locked up. Well, I mean, I think with the... 
Russell T. Davis, Cyberman, you, you have got that, you do have that dehumanization element with the Bluetooth controlling the minds of the humans. So that, 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 you know, you're right in saying we're having hip replacements, we're having, you know, 3D plastic, this, that and the other in our bodies and we're starting to plug in a bit more to the internet and people are actually thinking about, um, designing things which you can actually tap on the side of your head and it goes straight to your consciousness and all this kind of weird stuff. So the, you know, that in itself, yes, we're getting used to it, but that's also scary for a lot of people, and I think that's what Russell T. Davis was trying to highlight. Was that? Also, we've, we've yeah. mentioned this many times before. It's, they've gone from this kind of hideous nightmare creation that's part human, part machine, into really just robots. They have. I mean, it's Nightmare and Silver, uh, but you know they. Design-wise, it's actually really quite nice. Um, oh yeah, they look amazing. They look amazing, but it's like, why? What? what what's their purpose mm. here apart from just doing a Dalek thing and taking people and converting them? Well, they had the whole thing about upgrading in mm. Nightmare in Silver, but the fact was, you never really saw it on screen. You saw no. lots of times when they said, "Oh, water upgrade. Oh, okay, we can go through water." That's not clever enough to really sell the concept, mm. because let's be honest, water is not really that much of a barrier, is it? What you really needed... What, well, it, right. shouldn't, it shouldn't be. What you really needed right. to see in that story was the Cybermen come up against a brick wall and say, right, upgrade and find some way to get beyond the brick wall. Mm. Not literal brick wall, do you know what I mean? Metaphorical brick wall... But and of course, really... ironically, you had the, a lot of Who fans have criticised the Borg in the Star Trek universe for copying the Cybermen, and really it's come full circle because they're doing this sort of immediate upgrade thing, which is very much along those mm. lines. Quite. Um, there's three more short ones. Let's do those because there's a couple mm-hmm. of long ones. We'll save those for the end. Martin Gardner says, number one, the Absorber love. Oh, yeah. We'll come back to that, Lee, don't you worry. <laughs> Although it's not on my list. Mm. Which is fortunate because Simon wanted it to be on my list and he's not here, so he won't be disappointed to find it's not. <laughs> Number two, the Vardens. Number three, the thing that Jennifer becomes at the end of The Elmo's People. Number mm. four, the thing at the end of Colony in Space. I think he means the little puppet man with a brain. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and number five, the Vord. David Pavey says, just want to put it out there that crap monsters are not always in crap stories. Here's my top five. Although I could probably nominate another top five on top of these top five. He says, number one, the Monoids security kitchen. (laughs) Yeah. Number two, the Ergon. Oh, that was the word I was looking for earlier. Made me laugh, he says. The Tarum Wood Beast, so bad it's good. Mm. Number Mm. four, is one that nobody else has mentioned, but the Scarasen coming out of the Thames. Yeah. yeah. Pretty, pretty dodgy. Yeah. And number five, the bubble wrap in the Ark in Space. Oh, he yeah. makes a very good point. They're all classic stories, all ones that are held in very high esteem mm. and all with slightly iffy monsters. But were there, was that bubble wrap monster an iffy monster at the time, or was it only because we all know what bubble wrap is now? Because I think that was quite a new kind of uh, plastic, wasn't it, on the on the high street. It was this new kind of design and concept and packaging, so a lot, a lot of people had seen it. So at, it may have looked quite odd and mysterious and yeah, otherworldly. Yeah, at the time it probably looked pretty good. Although yeah. I'm not sure, Mark, when he mentions the Ark and uh, Ark of Infinity, 
Oh, actually, you mentioned the Ark, Ark of Infinity, and the Ark in Space. You think he's got something going on there? <laughs> I think there's a story arc going on there. Oh. <laughs> but I wouldn't say they were all classic stories then, Ark. Well, okay. in your opinion. Graham Boyd says, I've been trying to think of crap monsters, and I think my knowledge of classic Who is either too sketchy or too rose-tinted, as I can't think of all that many. But I would like to make a special mention for the pink plastic bag with some sticks monster from the Ogron planet at the end of Frontier in Space. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. yeah. If, he says... If the monster is so bad that the director decides not to even shoot parts of the script, then it must be bad. Oh, man. He also says, oh, and I love the idea of the Rutan, but when you finally see one, boy, is it a letdown. Again. Um, oh, it's an awesome monster. Again, a glowing green carrier bag. Otherwise, I think I can live with all the others, he says. Looking forward to hearing what makes you guys cringe. Do you know what? The Rutan. I think that is something that is absolutely crying out to be in the new series. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. I hope it doesn't, though, because I'm writing a story about it, but hey. Oh. I'm sure they'll piss off firstly before they do anything. <laughs> and I'm equally as sure that they won't. So, you know, what are you going to do? Hey, what are you going to do, huh? Okay, we'd better get on with this because <laughs> we said we were going to try and keep it to 60 minutes tonight, <laughs> and we're almost there already. Yep. And we've not even got to the new series yet. And oh boy, the new series. Well, I will prologue talking about the new series by saying 15 years of hiatus, 26 years of the classic series, 50 years, near enough, since the very start of Doctor Who, of advancements in technology and design. 50 years of history in which... 50 years, in fact of mistakes from which to learn and we get to the classic the new series from the classic series and of course we don't need to carry on with this podcast because they're not gonna make mistakes there aren't gonna be any crap monsters in the uh... new series other other mark are you saying there are yes <laughs> that sounds like a thought <laughs> funny you should say that lee <laughs> Oh, my Lord. <laughs> okay, Mark, are you telling me there are crap monsters in the new series? Well, uh, I'm trying to give you a bit of a clue. <laughs> <clears throat> Do you know what's on this list, Mark? Uh, well, it's a bit of a given, isn't it? <laughs> Your timing's perfect. Okay, monster that annoyed a lot of people. Slitheen. Is oh, it a crap no. monster? Um, uh, It's obviously a... Oh, was mixed, isn't it? Because if you look at that um, second episode, where they've got that that terrible mix of CGI and pup, pup not puppetry, uh, you know, man in a suit thing, they make a massive error there because they want it to be obviously like the CGI, but what they have got is a man in a suit. It's just just stuck with it. Um, I think if I remember right, watching it the first time, I was so up for anything because it was crazy. That was crazy times. Those first mm-hmm. three or four episodes were like. Uh, all right, there's a space pig. Yeah, all right, there's this. What? What's going on? They're unzipping. They're fat people fighting. What's going on? But you just accepted it and laughed your way through it and thought, this is fantastic because it's so bonkers. And we instantly kind of forgave the Slitheen. I think it's only till they started turning up in Sarah Jane that you suddenly felt like they were more like kiddie monsters and we could all have a good poke at them, I think. It felt like people were forgiving them 
for being in the new series, and it didn't matter. It didn't matter too much. But it's an interesting... They are a good concept because they're a family. They are a very weird concept because they speak quite posh English when you expect them to be talking like this, and they don't. Um, the design is brilliant. I absolutely adore the design of these things. But, you know, to actually perform inside it, uh, yeah, they look rubber, don't they? <laughs> to be honest. They I mean, do. You've got, you've got two callbacks to the classic series. You've got what is, I think, quite a a cool and quite a horrific um, use of the sort of skin suit where you've got the zip that peels back. Mm, That's mm. pretty grim. But then you've got the worst of the sort of green, dodgy-looking monster, really. But you, you've got but the grim. The... You've got the grimness of of the skin suit. Mm. But it, it but it's beautifully humoured by having a zip on it. <laughs> the zip, oh, yeah. the zip is brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I love that. The the idea of a costume having a zip on that's part of the fiction <laughs> rather than part of the costume is fantastic, and also ties in with something that Simon suggested about the absorber loft. But mm. that's equally true for the Slitheen, almost in a way, in that. Because I have lumped the absorber off in with the slithine here, in that it's a monster that is more annoying than a bad concept per se. It's more that there is something about the monster that's almost designed to get on. You're Doctor saying Who. it's knowingly bad. No, I'm not saying it's knowingly bad. I'm saying there's something about the concept that is almost guaranteed to get on the wicks of middle-aged Doctor Who fans. Mm. You think they've gone sort of meta and mind a bit of... Well, this is this is Simon's suggestion. I think somebody had mentioned this to Simon, or maybe mm. it was that Simon came up with it himself. I can't remember, but I think this was something that Simon had seen mentioned on Facebook or somewhere. Mm. And he said that Love and Monsters is a story about Doctor Who fandom. And he said, is the Absorbaloff a crap monster on purpose to reflect the perception of Doctor Who being a series that has crap monsters? Mm. And you can say the same thing about the Slitheen, because I've also heard it suggested, and actually entirely independently of this, the very night Aliens of London was on was during a period when I think, Mark, you were at the same time. We were all going out to the pub afterwards Mm -hmm. and talking about the story we'd just seen, and we all said about the Slitheen, they look fantastic, but as a man in a suit, doesn't really work. It's mm. a bit crap. And I think we all said, well, actually, we don't really mind because Doctor Who's always had crap monsters, and so it just feels at home. Exactly. You, you know, you, we all forgive it, don't we? Especially yeah. in that early period of, of having it back. We're just thankful it was on the telly. But... By the same token, it has been suggested elsewhere that the Slitheen were deliberately designed to be something that would be an affront to a certain kind of middle-aged Doctor Who fan. Well, I think Hence if, the, was, if they were working on that sort of level, I think it certainly worked. gets a mark. Hence also, of course, the farting. And I think the fart... I've always said this, I've said this so many times on the podcast, it barely merits me mentioning it again, but I will. I think yeah. the farting... I think the farting is something that kids can go into school on the Monday after the episode's been on and something that's just stupid and ridiculous and that everybody does all of a sudden takes on a sinister edge and it brings a whole new dimension to the playground and the classroom. I think it's brilliant. 
And actually, in a, in a scientific way, RTD was really brilliant at throwing pseudoscience at people that made kind of weird sense. And it's a gas exchange. It's, oh, not, yeah, farting. Yeah. it's not farting, is it? But that's, you know, I love that idea that he had an excuse, a reason for throwing that in. Because I didn't like it the first time I heard it. I was thinking, oh, this is a bit childish. And then he explained it and I thought, oh, all right, okay, I'm going to go with that. I'll believe anything this bloke says at this stage. And, of course, the Absorbalov, moving on slightly, mm. is a very similar thing. And, in fact, he even makes it a cousin of the Slovene by coming from their twin planet in the system or whatever it is. Klom. Yeah, Klom. And the Absorbalov appeals to, or unappeals to, if you want to put it in those terms, all the exact same things as the Slovene. Instead of the farting, it's got a stupid Mohican and it runs around in a nappy, right? And basically <laughs> it looks a bit like a Slovene. Oh, and while we're on the subject of what the Slovene looks like, that head with the big baby eyes that are completely black, so childlike and yet so sinister, I think it's a brilliant design. It the Absorbalov, not such a brilliant design, but then it was designed by a 10-year-old. Yeah. And somebody said... You know, this is Simon's suggestion. Was the Absorbaloff made crap on purpose to reflect the perception of Doctor Who being a series that has crap monsters? No, because both the look of the creature and the concept behind the creature were come up came came up with by a kid who had no idea if of middle aged men's perceptions of what <laughs> Doctor Who should be. If you were to cut the head off and remove the actor, the rest of the body's pretty cool. But then that Jesus Simon... Christ, Lee, you can't cut the head off and remove the actor. <laughs> but the extreme. Yeah, aside, Jesus, I'm aside. not that big a fan of Peter Cave, and I wouldn't <laughs> do that to him. But joking aside, that that what that kid designed, I think, was brilliant. It came out of a kid's head. I love the idea of it. So we know that it wasn't designed to be a crap monster. Uh, as, as a joke because it was designed by a kid like you said and it's a really good and it was supposed to be big and not small but hey you know um, and then when you look at the actual design of the costume you know I think the body part of it is great uh, if it had been like a purpley browny colour maybe the, and would just have been a bit to more cut in slightly and I'll only be brief and get back to you yeah like the Slitheen where you've got the farting that's something stupid but it's actually sinister in the Absorbalov you've got all these heads around the body exactly. a bit like in the five doctors right at the end there mm-hmm. that's a bit stupid but also really sinister and I, I I think it kind of works on two levels there right yeah. back to what you were saying about the head no you're right about the sinisterness and what it does is also have a bit of humor because obviously there's a face on his bum and he has to kind of move up and somebody else talks which is funny, but also still equally sinister. But it's the performance, I think, more than anything. It was the, it was the Mohican in the design and the performance that failed this. Um, the other, the rest of it, I thought was fine. The concept and part of the costume itself was all right. It was just Peter Kay's um, stupid accent, and it's not a stupid. Lee, accent, you're not one of, one of these fans who doesn't like um, famous people making cameos in Doctor Who, are you? No, no, no one likes famous people in cameos, that's fine. Yeah. But I just think, you know, making him like up north, which is fine, because every planet has a north, hey. Um, I, I don't know, it just seemed like a normal one of his characters that he normally plays. He could have just continued with the same accent. It could He could have just pulled apart his clothes and had a weird kind of purpley-pink belly with people's faces on it. That would have been horrific. Um, but why you had to have a green alien with um, a comedy norm- northern accent, I suppose? It just... Yeah. No, it was too. It was too much of an antithesis of his character um, with the with the hat and the cane. 
Right, shall we move on, or have you got anything else to say, Mark, about the Slitheen or the Absorber Love? Um, no, I think that's about my say, really, I think, apart from uh, that. In an attempt to make this the funniest podcast ever, <laughs> Mark, I suspect you've probably had the complete opposite effect. <laughs> okay, moving on to the Tenth Doctor, and... Well, we were going to have the Absorbalof in here, but because the Absorbalof is so similar to the Slitheen, it allowed me to free up this spot in order to throw something in that kind of became a little bit of a bugbear of mine by the end of the Tenth Doctor era, and I could, I could see why they were doing what they were doing, but after they'd done it about five or six times, I was just thinking, okay, that was a trick you had up your sleeve but on the sixth occasion when you've used it, it's not really up your sleeve anymore. And that is monsters that have human bodies and the head of an earth creature. The one I chose in particular was the Hath. I'll come back to the specific reason why I chose the Hath mm -hmm. in a minute. But the pig slaves, the cat nuns, the mm -hmm. tritivores, the judoon, and so on and so on and so on. It's basically your domestic pet's head on top of a body in a boiler suit. <laughs> uh, now... You've spoiled it for me now. I've never yeah. thought of it like that. <laughs> but the, 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 the idea itself works. You can see why they do it. Stick it in a boiler suit or, you know, a wimple. With a cravat. Yeah, or a wimple or whatever. That That saves you money. And when you're on a budget, if this is going to be the fairly cheap story in the series, or if you just want to save money so you can use it on something else elsewhere, stick it in a boiler suit or a wimple or whatever. Okay, you've saved a bit of money. So it's got a human body. Fair enough. Need to put a head on the top. Right. Doctor Who. 50 years of Doctor Who being littered with various masks that people have had to wear as Doctor Who monsters that have just been not exceptionally good designs. And, you know, you can say the same for Star Trek, Babylon 5, whatever your science fiction series in, is if you, as a designer, have been given a task by the writer, and the writer will very rarely, in his script, say, alien monster looks exactly like this and describe something that does your job for you, the writer's basically going to give you a concept and you basically have to start from scratch if the concept is basically boiler suit, alien head. So, makes it a little bit easier for the designer. Also, makes it easy for the viewer. <clears throat> in that there's a shortcut here. The cat nuns, for example. There's a shortcut by sticking a cat's head on these bodies to enabling the viewer to see this creature as something that is possibly friendly, but possibly also duplicitous. Because we all know that cats are only friendly when they want to be, and when they want something, it's in their nature to get it, no matter what they have to do to get it. Mm -hmm. The rhinoceroses that became the Jadoon. <clears throat> There's a shortcut there to the viewer to allow them to see that this alien is going to be not particularly intelligent, and also fairly aggressive. And, and the Jadoon, they're not especially intelligent, they're aggressive, but they're kind of plodding as well at the same time. Like cattle are, and rhinoceroses, they're just cattle with horns, right? 
but horns on their noses instead of horns by their ears. So there's a shortcut there. Pig slaves, the same. The tritivores, the same. There are all sorts of shortcuts there, which makes it a great idea. It's just that when you do that idea over and over and over again, by the time you get to the fifth or sixth time it happens, your audience are just going, oh my God, have you got no other tricks up your sleeve? Okay, yeah. rant over, and I'll come back to the half <laughs> in a minute, because I've got well, something very specific to say about the half. Yeah, I kind of agree. I, I, I don't have a problem with any of those ideas, though. I don't mind them being human with an animal head. Um, you know, when you look at things like, uh, let me just think, the, the cats in survival, uh, the ogrons, the husks even, um, and the... Crawls. The kraals, yeah, exactly, the kraals. Yeah, but see, those are examples spread over a 20-year period. Yeah, so you're saying within kind of one doctor's tenure, there's loads of these ideas. There's loads of this idea, not these ideas. Sorry, yeah, this idea. You're right, by the time I got to the half, I think I'd seen through the veil, actually. It was the half that made me think, oh, great head, great design, but why are they walking around with two legs and, you know, what could they not have had a... A tail or <laughs> big flippery arms or something. I don't know. Gone a bit more to town with it. Um, yeah, yeah. Try to force the same. Yeah, you're right. Gosh, Mark. Well, you and I have talked about this half thing before, so I don't want to really want to steal your thunder. Oh yeah, but on about just the idea in general of pigs in boiler yeah, suits. Yeah, yeah. It does. <sighs> I was a bit of a sucker for the cat nuns. I like those. I thought they were quite a cool idea. But and also, they were early. Yeah. So you told me it was the pig slaves. Yeah. Only at the weekends. Um, but no, um, I think just as time goes on, like you say, they they rehash it and perhaps the specialness wears off. But, um, yeah. It, well, the, it's, it's, it's a bit lazy, really, in some respects. Mm, I can, you know, I can so see why they did it, but to do it so often just really does smack of laziness. The reason I picked the Hath in particularly is mm. because in that story, you, and this is not really anything to do with the Hath per se, but the Hath, the fish with like two arms and two legs, right? Like you said. Mm. Okay, that's a bit daft to start with, but yeah. no dafter than some of the other ones. So, okay, you give it a pass because of that. They have this thing attached to their noses, which has got a little bit of water in it, which is because they're fish so that they can breathe on dry land. And also, when they talk, they talk by blowing bubbles into this thing, which is their language. And poor Martha, who is brought back as a returning guest companion, only to spend the entire first story she's in as a returning guest companion, uh, you know, in this bath of liquid, while a double of her runs around. She must know, have loved my... the scripts when she got to read them. And then the second one... She goes off on an adventure to an alien planet, and you think... And gets lumbered with fishy. Yeah, she should have spent that time with the Doctor and with Donna, and the, that story should have been about the interaction between the three of them, mm. and Martha should have had something to say about the Doctor's daughter aspect of that story, because mm. Martha, you know, Donna is a bit like the Doctor's aunt or something. She's not romantically interested in him. Martha is, so there should have been a story to tell there about, or Martha was rather, should have been a story to tell there about how Martha 
reacts to the idea of the Doctor suddenly getting this daughter, but instead Martha's sent off to spend the entire episode with these walking fish, and within ten minutes she's understanding every bubble they blow. What the hell? <laughs> oh, I've told you before I'm like, oh crap, that episode is. Nobody believes me. I think there's some great stuff in that episode, but I think in terms of that, I think there's some great stuff in that episode, but nothing to do with the half has anything to do with that great stuff. I think Ian really needs to take the half out of that episode altogether. And Martha, or else use Martha better, but the half in that episode is a nonsense. I don't it's another mind. example of just throwing a monster in because we need to have a monster. Basically. I don't really mind the idea of blowing bubbles and it communicating through bubbles. We've had stranger things happen, but you're right about the fact that, you know, Martha shouldn't be able to understand it, whatever the weather. Um, Either she should or she shouldn't. Either the TARDIS should translate it right from the yeah. moment she gets there, or yeah. she shouldn't understand it even by the end of the episode. Because it's not a language you can learn, it's bubbles. Yes, exactly. Do it with mine. Mm. Should we? Oh, we've got two emails, and then we've got Knox Box. Should we have another email, then do the eleventh Doctor, then do the last email and Knox Box? Yeah, can I can I quickly throw something in? Go on, quickly. Uh huh. Um, I was majorly disappointed by the promise of something called a Cybershade, and I really thought this was (laughs) going to be something amazing and different because it's a great, it's a great word, it's a great name. As soon as I saw what they were, which is just a bloke in a raggedy kind of outfit, which plainly was made out of rags, uh, with a stupid stick-on cyber face, I, th- I think that's one of the worst concepts, ideas, designs, everything uh, throughout yeah. the whole of Doctor Who's history. It just utterly, utterly spoiled that episode for me, which I thought was near perfect in, in storytelling terms. I really enjoyed it. But, I can't um, disagree yeah. with a word you're saying. No. In fact, anyway, slightly, doesn't... slightly, there's yeah. something going on there that's the opposite of the, you know, pets heads in boiler suits. Because you've got, <laughs> because you've got a Cyberman's head, sort of, the mask thing, on a monkey's body, as it were. Oh, is it monkey? Yeah. I mean, on, but whatever on it's that supposed note, to be, yeah. You've, uh, in the Lazarus experiment, you've got something that's supposed to be well, Mark Come Gates's to that, head. Mark, because that's our last one. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> But well done for jumping ahead of yourself. That's all right. Well, it's not actually specifically our last one, but it will be part of our last little discussion. Miles Northcott, and this is quite a long email, he says, Paul McGann's single foray into terrestrial TV Doctor Who wasn't the show's finest hour, but aside from a few continuity foes par, was otherwise pretty good. Although the idea of the Master as a snake-like ectoplasmic thing never quite rang true to me. But it was well realised, so scrapes onto the list. So to New Who, right, this is because he wrote this email in between our first Crap Monsters episode and the new one. So, here are some suggestions for Crap Monsters for New Who from Miles Northcott. The Autons have never been properly realised since returning, but are too great a monster to be on this list. The Slitheen generally looked superb, but were too much of a jokey monster to be considered truly great, and are another one to skirt dangerously close to this list. <coughs> the mighty Jagrafess of the holy Hadrajasic Maxarodenfo is probably the big letdown of the otherwise triumphant return of our great show to the nation's TV screens. 
Although we subsequently learned that this was down to Dalek manipulation, the creature never seemed like it would pose too much of a real threat, despite that mouth and all the best efforts of the mill. At other time, it felt like this was the first relative failure for the new team, although the glossy visuals smoothed things over somewhat. Whilst, like many, I've never been that keen on the new styling of the Cybermen and would agree that they haven't yet had a really good story since the show came back, things are improving mainly for them and they definitely stay clear of this list, although those stupid Cyber Shades and the Cyber <laughs> King are very much on it. Neither really make any logical sense and let us not forget that the Cybermen are supposedly creatures of pure logic. Whoops. Yeah, it's not wrong. The Cyber King is a beautiful design. It would look great in, a, in an annual or a, or a comic strip. It just is beautiful. I love the idea of it, but it doesn't make any bloody sense whatsoever, does it? Why would they make this thing? And how on earth could they make something that big under Victorian London, no matter how many orphans they use? Uh, no, nah, that's outrageous. <laughs> it's really stupid, but I did love it in a kind of twisted, silly way. Oh, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. I don't think Doctor Who always needs to make that kind of sense. Anyway, back to Miles Northcott. <clears throat> love and Monsters is a truly divisive story in that some love it, some hate it, and others that don't come down in either camp often have strong feelings one way or the other about certain aspects of it. As we all know, the Absorbal Off was created through a Blue Peter competition, and even with the mighty Peter Kay in the role, is certainly a worthy addition to this list. The monster is too cartoonish to work properly, and would have been best used more sparingly. Fleeting glimpses in dark corners, rather than showing the absorbable off in all its, um, glory. I reckon many will include the various terrors of Fear Her in this list due to the general antipathy towards it, but I actually felt that the Skrull monster and the Isolus worked fine in the context of the story, so no more on them will be said by me here. <clears throat> One of my main bugbears with RTD during his tenure was his obsession with monsters derived from various animals. It all started with the Space Pig, then we got cat wool, cat nuns, wolves, bats, rhinos, crabs, albeit macra, everybody, yay. And then we get the pig slaves in Daleks in Manhattan. Again, this is a concept which I just don't see the logic in. The Daleks are more than capable of robotizing the humans of 30s New York, so why on earth start messing around with pigs? Where did they get the pigs in New York anyway? Wouldn't rats have made more sense if they were subterranean? Another visual idea with no logic behind it, I fear, and don't even get me started on the Dalek-Sec-Human hybrid. Eek! <clears throat> Lazarus's ultimate form didn't work well for me. An otherwise good story took one step too far with the CGI creature, which, a bit like the flesh in later seasons, was too ambitious for what it was trying to do. The Heavenly Host in Voyage in the Damned are fine in themselves, but how many of us, having seen, having seen them, thought, why didn't they bring back the Vok robots from Robots of Death? Missing that trick puts them firmly in this list. Wasps. That is all. <laughs> we then get quite a gap with no weak monsters until the Vampires of Venice and the Saturnines. While these creatures look gorgeous, although very fishy, Russell, in their true form, the story let them down, and I really feel that they weren't used anywhere near as well as they could have been. Like many, I would love to see a return of the old-style Silurians rather than these far more human-looking versions, but they are still a brilliant creation, so that is the only mention they get from me here. Since then, I don't feel any of the creatures and monsters have really let the side down, and there have been triumphs, the silence, anyone, 
So that wraps up my list of the crap creations from the Colin Baker era onwards, and I have to say that I would take any of these monsters and stories above the vast majority of televisual content before or since. Like I said, everything is relative, and in comparison to Doctor Who's triumphs, these are the weaker examples. Sorry. I don't think he got the idea of naming only five, but there you go. That was... <laughs> yeah. But that, that was a low... Valid point, so. <clears throat> And he mentions our last uh, nomination, or our last two nominations, since I'm sort of classifying these two together, mainly due to the realisation that almost flesh creature for the 11th Doctor, mm -hmm. and that kind of covers some similar ground to the Lazarus creature in uh, the Lazarus experiment, because the Lazarus creature was taking a human being back to some kind of primordial version where it might have taken a different evolutionary path. Mm -hmm. But basically what it was doing was taking a human being and extrapolating the hell out of it to come up with some big CGI thing, like something out of the thing from another world, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what you get as well in the Almost People. And for me, I think they're both just about work. I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with either of them. They're just a bit odd. I think they're a bit odd rather than bad. But a lot of people have nominated them, and you two seem to have been champing at the bit as well. well so actually, what's the problem? No, no, I, I actually agree with you. Um, what? What's going on? No, I do. I think they are. I think they're okay. I mean, the Lazarus monster is is pretty good, but it's just that face. It's the uncanny valley face business. If they'd mm. just gotten rid of the face and put a big set of teeth on two eyes, yeah. you would have you've had a, you'd have had a, a, quite an amazing creature. I think it's just that face that ruins it. And the CGI isn't that bad. It's pretty ropey, but it's all right. Whereas the flesh creatures, I particularly like them in a weird way. I thought the uh, girl with a big mouth and everything was absolutely terrifying and my son found it terrifying too so I, and it's, it makes more sense that she's a twisted kind of contorted body because she is made out of this flesh stuff so i didn't find it that bad at all but again you do get that kind of you know vacantness in the cgi eye department but um no I, I didn't think they were that bad at all i would have probably gone for something like prisoner zero which was bloody awful and didn't make any sense hanging from what exactly just hanging from the top <laughs> of the you know yeah. that's that's the kind of thing I, that was bad cgi and a bad idea as well prisoner one shouldn't have been a, a hanging snake but you know that's that's my vote <laughs> i think it was what uh stephen moffat did with the with that when he was disguised as everything else you know when the dog spoke with the man's voice mm -hmm. that <laughs> People really enjoyed about it. It makes up for it, doesn't it? And also yeah. the Lazarus creature with his um, uncanny valley face, yeah, and mad body. I kind of loved that. I, I like the creature itself, but I agree with what Lee was saying. I think they were doing what they could with the technology and the budget they had at the time, but I don't think they could really have something that looked right if they were going to try and make it look like Mark Gatiss. Leslie said they should have just gone for. You know, a full-on monster face, and I think that would have sold it. Yeah. I, I think, <coughs> while we're on the eleventh Doctor, I think the Whisper Men are a bit of a weak addition to the canon that's come up with the Weeping Angels and the Silence, where it's the concept that's the monster. The Whisper Men, not much of a concept there. You can see why he's put them in as a sort of sidekick for the Great Intelligence, just to do his bidding. But they don't. 
you I've know, seen this... a few people mention there a, a slight homage to uh, is it the Fixed. gentleman from oh, Buffy? Yeah. yeah, and also various other things as well. Looks mm. like the main character from V from Vendetta. Is it? They do, yeah, a little bit. They do look um, very much like the trickster yes. that we've seen in Sarah mm, Jane. So yeah. it might have been better to kind of use this, the trickster himself, or maybe you could explain that this is a creature that he used a template from. You know, the, the trickster well, kind of the idea. But great it just, intelligence. Mm, should have had him animating something like he animated the Yeti in the Abominable yeah, Snowman. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that would have just made more sense to me. But mm. there you go. Um, to be honest, though, I think the Eleventh Doctor's era, it's not really been a monster era, but I don't think there's been anything that stood out as particularly bad, really. Some people have said to me, uh, when we were doing the Crap Monsters, they were going on about the Crayfus, Crayfus, the kind of invisible chicken. Oh, a Grafaeus. Grafaeus, that's it. Um, and again, I didn't have a problem with that. I just thought, well, that's probably what the creature looks like. You can't Mm. have a go at um, a, a giant chicken that actually... You know, we talk. You can. The doctor understands him, but we don't need to. It's like the baby; he can understand baby. We don't need to understand what he's saying. Um, it, it, I don't know. It just had, it had more of a weight to it that it was actually an animal, as opposed to an intelligent kind of uh, civilized creature. Yeah, I agree. I didn't think it was remotely bad. And if you were going to have something in that story, I thought it was quite sweet. Yeah, exactly. Okay, crap monsters. I think. Our conclusions have been pretty obvious all the way through that episode. You know, as I said at the start, there are these four areas where something can go wrong, and in pretty much everything we've brought up, one of those areas has been to blame, if not two or three of them sometimes. But generally speaking, none of them have been so bad that they've failed right across the board. No, well... Apart from the cryons. (laughs) (laughs) I've been a few... Most of the others have stood up in, you know, one way or another. Even in the first episode, when we're talking about things like, I don't know, the Crotons. You know, the Crotons were, you know, an interesting concept that Mm. were just let down by 60s production values, really. Yeah. What about the Slither? Well, you know, that's just the slave thing of the Daleks that they've just set out there. A bit like the mutant sort of thing. The giant clam. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that's in an episode only for a few minutes. It's hardly really counting Mm. on our list. Yeah, fair enough. Um, The Great Intelligence, our last email for the night, says, To hold a rubbish monsters episode and not mention the awful Jacondans from The Twin Dilemma would be a real omission (laughs) and a disruption to the space-time continuum of truth, justice and blue box rational sense. Although I think they were mentioned in one of the emails slightly earlier, but... I think he it was says... gastropods, wasn't it? Oh yes, of course it was, it was. Yeah. He says, you must remember the Jacondans. They were those awful bird-type people, dressed awfully <laughs> yeah. as dentists, with utterly <laughs> awful headpieces and awful pantomime noses. What must Colin Baker have thought on day one of the shoot? <laughs> I was better off with the Ergon, he was heard to whisper, thinking back to the set of Ark of Infinity. <laughs> anyway... Please do not neglect to mention these awful be- awful beauties of complete and utter design and makeup failure in your podcast. The fact that they placed a highly respectable but overweight actor in one of the tight dentist gowns only further compounded the end of Doctor <laughs> Who in the cool stakes. 
Awful, awful, awful. Made Mestor look magic, I suppose. <laughs> Regards, boys. Great intelligence. And we didn't neglect to mention them. In fact, no. I saved them till last. There you go. Very quickly, on a sixth Doctor note, bandrills. Oh, Ooh. don't mention the bandrills. Even on a podcast about rubbish monsters, you're tempting fate there, Mark. Well, a bit muppety. Actually, that's a bit harsh on Muppets. <clears throat> Guys, <laughs> are you ready to sing Knox Box for the very last time? Getting really emotional. Indeed. Go on then. Okay. Three, two, one. Knox Box. Mm, that was the worst we've ever done it, and that is That's... because we're all a little bit close to tears. Yeah, it's a, t- it's a time lag I'm filling up. <laughs> God, well, that didn't help either. <laughs> he this time he's watched two episodes and then given us a few thoughts on the end of his journey. He says the day of the Doctor. The only thing I dislike about this is that stupid bit with the TARDIS being picked up by the helicopter at the beginning. The rest is great fun. I like that the Doctor now saves Gallifrey, but that it doesn't ruin the damaged Doctor, born of the Time War, because until this point, he still thinks he killed them all. The whole resolution with the moment and the three Doctors feels very Doctorish. There are plenty of moments for the fans, and it's not afraid to make fun of the show's history. I still let out a bit of a squeal at Capaldi's and got a tear in my eye <laughs> when Tom Baker appears. Brilliant. Now, no this would be interesting. There. The time of the Doctor. I still think this is all very messy, but it does redeem itself with a beautiful final 15 minutes. I'm fine with the whole new regeneration cycle being sent through the crack by the Time Lords. Mm-hmm. The scene with the cracker is lovely, as is Matt's final speech. It's all very emotional. Yeah. I do feel a bit annoyed that Pouty Pond turns up because I feel that Clara gets pushed to the sidelines a bit. This is easily Matt Smith's best performance since seasons, series 6. So here we are, at the end of a journey, and what an odd journey it's been. Some stories improved with a rewatch, Amy's Choice, The Good Man Goes to War. Others didn't. The Lodger, name of the Doctor. My overall feeling at the end of Time of the Doctor is one of sadness, because I can't help think of what might have been. Matt Smith is a fantastic Doctor, but I feel he gets let down by some poor stories. He's amazing in season f- Series 5 and he managed to save Series 6, apart from maybe four stories, from being a total mess. In Series 7, I think he's resting on his laurels a bit. The twirling around and waving of the arms becomes annoying, and we only get the odd flash of how good he's been. I think he left at the right time. As for Moffat, I still arrive at the same conclusion as I did before the rewatch. For a season and a half, his stuff is excellent, but then, for me at least, it really falls away. I don't know if this is because he's become such a busy bloke, or with the 50th on horizon, that's where his focus shifted. And you can't blame him for that. I think Matt wanting to leave when he did was a nightmare for Moffat. In three stories, he has to finish the Clara arc, introduce her, set up the anniversary special, foreshadow the fall of the 11th, deliver in the special, and then give Smith a worthy send-off. Something had to give. I really hope he silences his critics with Series 8 and Capaldi, because when Moffat's on fire, few come close. So, ultimately, was the rewatch successful? I really don't know. There are some fantastic episodes that I probably didn't appreciate before, but there is some poor stuff in there. I don't think it helps that they appear towards the end of the run, and those final impressions probably taint my overall opinion. And that was Grant Nock, giving us his man-on-the-ground guide to the Stephen Moffat era 
so that we didn't have to rewatch it for the final Thank you, time. Grant. I've got to say, that was a fantastic last email as well. Thank you, Grant. And he is at Cult of Morbius on Twitter. And anybody listening to this on Twitter who might want to catch more from Grant should definitely follow him. I'm not going to say why, but there may be something on the cards that may be of interest to you. Mm. Mysterious. So, shall we sing our way out of Noxbox for the final time? Everybody ready? Okay. Cry. Are we allowed to do backwards now? Or No, yes. you're not allowed to do backwards. Yes. That would be oh. appalling. And, do, it. Uh, do it. No, that would be... <laughs> That would be so disrespectful. Go on then. Three, two, one. Until next time, I was JR. I was Lee. And I was Mark. And we will speak again soon.